you know, it was really easy in my urban bubble as an, you know, upwardly mobile, openly gay <laughs> uh, person to not only forget those roots, but to sort of to other uh, the people back home and the people in rural America and to sort of blame them for the, the sins of the entire nation. That's Skylar Baker Jordan, today's guest on Everywhere Radio. Everywhere Radio is a production of the Rural Assembly, and I'm your host, Whitney Kimball Coe. Each episode, I spotlight the good, scrappy, and joyful ways rural people and their allies are building a more inclusive nation. Well, friends, this interview today, it feels a little bit like I'm coming full circle. Uh, This interview is the result of a serendipitous meeting I had with a a guy named Skylar Baker-Jordan several months ago. He and I ran into each other in a small coal miners museum in rural Tennessee. Skylar walked into a video interview I was conducting for another rural assembly program that we call Everywhere Extra. And I was with my friend, local community organizer, Austin Sauerbrei, and he and I were interviewing Boomer Winfrey, who oversees the Coal Creek Miners Museum in Rocky Top, Tennessee. So Skylar walks into the museum just as we're starting the interview, and he joined us to listen to Boomer tell the story of the convict lease system in East Tennessee and how it sparked a war in the heart of Tennessee's coal mining region. And at some point during that interview with Boomer, I learned that Skylar, who had taken up a perch behind me, is a freelance writer from Appalachia. And after the taping was over, we swapped cards and months later, it's just made me so happy to see Skylar's byline in the Daily Yonder and at 100 Days in Appalachia. And he's writing about his rural roots and documenting what it's like to be rural and gay and Appalachian and the multitude of other things that we carry with us. So I wanted to get Skylar on Everywhere Radio because I think he has some important observations and wisdom to share about how we reconcile all the parts of ourselves, who we are and where we live and what we experience, you know, taking it out of the realms of simple binaries. And Skylar, let me tell you, is a prolific writer. He writes on Twitter. I've been following on Twitter since we met. He writes for American and British outlets on policy, public policy, um, and on many other topics from history to pop culture. Um, And again, it's just a thrill to really come full circle with this random introduction that he and I had in Rocky Top uh, to this conversation today. So, Skylar, I really, really appreciate you saying yes. Um, Where are you calling from today? Uh, Caribou, Tennessee. So just a little north of Rocky Top. Yeah, and not far from me. Um, I'm in Athens today, so we're just a few hours apart. Um, So, I mean, you're not from Tennessee originally. You're from Kentucky, and I've been reading a whole lot of your writings that talk a lot about Kentucky. Remind me how you got to Tennessee. Well, I I took the long road, Um, (laughs) even (laughs) though it's just over the border. Um, I was born in Dayton, Ohio, um, which is not too far from Middletown, for those of you who are familiar with uh, the sort of Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance uh, narrative. Um, And I was born to the Descend, you know, I'm a descendant of Appalachian outmigrants, uh, much like many of the people that I grew up around. And so I split my time growing up between Dayton, Ohio, and my grandmother's hometown, which was in Leslie County, Kentucky. And I say Leslie County because there's no town, it's just the county. Uh, <laughs> but we were outside of Heighton. 
Um, and then I ended up going to high school in Haydn, um, and I loved it. Um, but it, it was challenging as a young gay man in the early 2000s to be gay in Eastern Kentucky. I think it was challenging to be gay anywhere at that time. Um, but after college, I went to Western Kentucky University. I spent seven wonderful years in Bowling Green, which is a city close to my heart that's just on the edge of Appalachia. Um, it's like one county outside the ARC uh, definition of what is Appalachia. Uh, and then after I left Bowling Green, I went to Chicago, where I spent seven years. Um, that's where I started really writing professionally um, while I was working in mortgages. Um, spent seven years there. And then in 2018, I moved to eastern North Carolina, <laughs> which is uh, where my mother's family is all from. Um, and then in 2019, um, so that was at the beginning of 2018. And then at the end of 2019, I moved to Tennessee which is where my grandparents had relocated. And this is my grandfather's ancestral hometown. Uh, Roberts and Jordans have been stomping these hills for about 200 years. So uh, deep roots here in Campbell County. Yeah. Oh, man. Thank you for telling us about that long route. And I want to get into some of the pieces of it. Well, And first, I, I wanted to ask you, because I can't remember, what were you doing at the Coal Miners Museum in Rocky Top? that day did you end up writing no, a piece I, about it was literally time? I had taken it was uh you know as a freelancer you don't really have like days off but I had taken a me day and I had gone down to the Museum of Appalachia because I hadn't been in probably 25 years so that was me going down to the museum and then I was like I'm not ready to go home well let's go to the Cool Creek Miners Museum I've never been there and so I walked in right as you were setting up and I almost walked out uh, but they said no. You can stay. <laughs> oh, there's something you were very, very generous with your time, and um, I'm so glad I did because, you know, what, what, what a story Boomer can tell, and what a wealth God, of knowledge. I know. Um, and for those of you listening out there, we, you can find that interview with Boomer Winfrey about the Coal Creek Museum and about the uprising in East Tennessee on the ruralassembly.org website. Um, it should be under Everywhere Extra if you go there. But, you know, so since you and I swapped cards that day, I started following you on Twitter. And I, I'm, I love all your nuanced opinions and descriptions of where you are and what you're thinking about. And, and it just really runs the gamut. Um, so I'm really glad we got our hooks into you for the Daily Yonder because you have a byline in the Yonder now. Um, I think the article was in December where you wrote a, a piece of commentary about this journey you started to describe to us about, um, you know, growing up queer in Appalachia and about moving to Chicago when you were 24 to find more opportunity in a, a larger gay community. I think I, I loved the phrase you used. Um, I was upwardly mobile and openly gay. <laughs> and then, and then you liken Chicago to holy water at first when you get off the bus. That was just really um, a wonderful turn of phrase. But you began to notice cracks when you were in Chicago um, because, you know, it, well, when you were in Kentucky, you were kind of hiding your queer identity. But when you were in Chicago, you were having to like sort of hide your Kentucky roots or at least, you know, maybe even apologize for them in some cases. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that, um, you know, what it was like to walk on both sides of that? And also, do you think your experience is common for queer, rural, LGBTQ young people? Well, I never hid. Um, that's one thing I do want to be very clear about. Like when I came out when I was 15, 
Um, I came out to my my parents the day before 9-11. So (laughs) that was a big week for my family. Um, Lots of, uh, I I think, shocks for my poor dad, who was a retired Marine. Um, But because I came out the day before 9-11, I think it put a lot of things in perspective for my family. So in a weird and I, I in a perverse kind of way, and I hate to say it because it was such a tragic day, but I think it made my journey a little bit easier um, than what maybe other people had, uh, especially at that time. We're talking 20 years ago. The world has changed a lot. So I can't speak to what, you know, LGBT youth are going through now. Certainly, I had a very difficult time in high school. I usually refer to it as a crucible of homophobia. Um, I was bullied relentlessly in Eastern Kentucky, and um, that that was tough. That was tough. But college was a completely different situation. I never felt like my sexual orientation held me back at all at Western. Um, and other people that I've talked to disagree. Uh, they they think their sexual orientation or gender identity did hold them back at Western at that time. Um, but I never experienced that. To me, Bowling Green was the first place I ever felt like I could be myself and be free. Um, but it was still a mid-sized Southern town. And so there were certain constraints. And in the back of your head, you were always thinking, if I hold his hand, is something going to happen? Um, and I was more than willing to take that risk, um, probably just because I'm real gobby and I don't care. Um, I don't know why. I, I, I think, I think honestly, I think having gone through high school the way that I did to me at that point, what's the worst anyone can say? It's already been said to me. So that's really made me very outspoken because heck, what do I care? Like (laughs) if I could survive that, I can survive just about anything. But not everyone thinks that way. And so for me, dating was hard because I was very openly gay. And a lot of people at that time in Kentucky weren't comfortable with that level of uh, visibility. And so that was part of what made me move to Chicago. Another thing was, I think this is a very common Appalachian experience, which is we go north looking for work. Um, I was really struggling in 2011 when I left to find gainful employment. And I didn't have any sort of direction. And that's, I think, a very common millennial experience. Um, I graduated with a humanities degree. I have a degree in history. Um, I knew I didn't want to go immediately to graduate school, but I didn't know what else to do. I wasn't certified to teach. That was probably a mistake in hindsight, but the plan had been to become a history professor until my history advisor told me not to do that because History, what, what did he say? History professors die in office. There are no job openings. <laughs> so, so I went to Chicago. Um, and in Chicago, you know, where in Kentucky I was struggling. I don't want to say I was struggling, but I felt a pressure to compartmentalize the gay part of myself in order to um, live maybe a more peaceful life. I was finding myself having to compartmentalize the rural part of my identity, which was, you know, even little things like listening to country music. Like you have no idea the stigma attached to something as, as you know, mundane as a country radio station to people who have this preconceived notion of what that represents and the symbolism of 
they're not even listening to the lyrics of the song. To them, they hear that sound and they've got these notions of backwardsness and bigotry in their heads. Um, unfortunately, country music isn't doing a whole lot to dispel that at the moment, but there's a lot more. And I think those of us who grew up with that music understand it. Um, so it was hard in Chicago to try and... I always felt like I was justifying myself and trying to, to explain that, you know, it's, it's not... It's not as backwards as it used to be. Um, and that, that got a lot harder during the Trump years. Um, but I definitely found myself missing the cultural aspects of growing up in Appalachia and in a rural, a rural area. So a lot of your writings have been um, not maybe not in defense of, but just, you know, trying to complicate narratives about what it means to be rural, to be a to, to feel close to your culture and um, and that we contain multitudes. I think you wrote that, that rural contains multitudes and so do you. Um, so I wonder how you then went from Chicago to, uh, from, a, from I think writing about mortgages to, um, to getting on track of changing the narrative in a way about rural people and places. Well, I was working in mortgages. I, I wasn't writing about it. I was actually doing that. Um, and that, yeah, that's a, I could talk for hours about the mortgage industry and why I left. Um, it's a very interesting industry though. Um, and that was, I mean, that was a job I got. I, I literally took, uh, an interview because I thought they were hiring a receptionist. They threw me in and asked me if I wanted to be a sales assistant or an underwriting assistant. I had no idea what either of those were, but underwriting had writing in it. So I took that. Um, and then, uh, you know, writing doesn't always pay well. So while I was building up my name and my career, I worked in mortgages. Um, but, um, you know, sort of beyond that, how did I get into writing about rural America? That really happened when I moved to North Carolina. And I, I found myself having to confront notions that I had about what it meant to be rural. Um, notions like what? what? What did you have? I moved to Chicago, or I moved to North Carolina, rather, in February of 2018. So this was just over a year after Trump was inaugurated. And I had up until that point really compartmentalized Bowling Green as being separate from the rest of the South or the rest of Kentucky. And I, I really remembered my times in Leslie County as a high school student um, and thought, oh, those people are so hateful. Bowling Green was nice, but ugh. And then I moved back because my 16 year old, my, he was 16 at the time, uh, was hit by a school bus and my family needed me down there. And so I moved back and I was immediately confronted with people who destroyed the stereotype of the hateful Trump voter. Um, people in my own family, but people in the community who rallied around my brother to, and my family to, to, to really help us and who took you know, accepted me as a gay man without even second thought. They weren't these bigoted, ignorant hillbillies that I think that I had even, in the course of living in Chicago, sort of written 
those uh, rural America off as because, you know, it was really easy in my urban bubble as an, you know, upwardly mobile, openly gay uh, person to not only forget those roots, but to sort of other uh, the people back home and the people in rural America and to sort of blame them for the the sins of the entire nation, which I think is something that happens quite often. Of course. And how, I mean, how do you approach telling that story um, where, where it's not those strict binaries or stereotypes? Um, what are the complications that you kind of like to put in the mix or examine um, for that narrative? Well, to begin with, it really involved me eating a little bit of crow. Um, you know, <laughs> I had written... Yeah, humility. it starts with humility. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, I the first piece I ever wrote for The Independent, which is a British newspaper I still write for, um, was right after Donald Trump was elected. I was in London and I wrote half my family voted for Trump, half my family voted for Clinton, and now we can't stand each other. Um, and that was it. And I wrote about how, you know, I wasn't talking to my family who voted for Trump. Obviously, that changed when my brother had his accident. And so I had to explain that to my readers. You know, why did it change? What happened? And that accident put a lot of things in perspective for me. Um, and it moved me back to the South, which thank God it did, because it really took the, the, the weights off my eyes. And I was able to, to see with clarity that things are not as black and white as our polarized politics would tell us. Um, I had conversations with my maternal grandmother uh, who lives in North Carolina about Black Lives Matter. She voted for Trump, but she also thought police brutality against Black Americans was a massive problem. This was an evangelical woman who, you know, came to the uh, conclusion that we needed police reform through a different lens maybe than I was looking through, you know, from the left. But we, we, we found agreement on that issue. And the more I talked to Trump voters, and, you know, living in Jacksonville, North Carolina, you couldn't not talk to Trump voters. Um, you know, the more I talk to them, the more I recognize that we had far more in common than we did that separated us. And that even positions that I might find difficult to understand, and that's being generous, um, they they came at from a often, not always, but often from a position that wasn't born of hatred. And so you start to sort of understand that there is a material reality to these people's lives that has been overlooked by, I think, our politics at large. And so I'm trying to mm -hmm. it that way and say, there are reasons why things are the way they are, and we need to understand those if we're ever going to address them. We'll be right back after this from The Daily Yonder. Hi, I'm Xander Brown with The Daily Yonder. Check out The Yonder Report, a new weekly podcast rounding up the latest rural news. Produced by The Daily Yonder and Public News Service, you can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sometimes these it feels intractable trying to write about these the bridges and about the the shared values and about the the ways that our futures are are linked. Um, to one another. Has COVID deepened that? I wonder if that's made your, your work harder in a way 
Well, on a on a very practical level, yes, because I can't get out in the community the way that I would have liked to have gotten out in the community. You know, mm-hmm. it's made those things very, very hard. Um, you know, what complicates that even more is the fact that I live with my elderly grandparents. So I have to constantly keep in mind, you know, is this gathering, is this event going to compromise their health? We're vaccinated, yeah. we're boosted, so I'm a little less paranoid than I was a year ago, but it's still a cause for concern. But, you know, COVID has certainly exasperated our uh, our culture wars and our cultural divides. And that's really a shame because I had hoped something like this would bring us together. And I kept thinking about the sacrifices that people made in the Second World War, the rationing and such, when all of this first happened back in like March of 2020. And I thought this could be it. This could be the thing that brings us together. Instead, it's just served as something else to tear us apart. I, I struggle with that because it's hard for me to understand why, because the science to me seems very straightforward. But again, COVID deepened it, but it didn't cause it. And it, it exasperated, I think, you know, the symptoms of the problem, which went back to like disinformation and the fact that we live in these um, political bubbles and that we're increasingly identifying ourselves um, by our political position or our political party as opposed to, you know, Kentuckians and Tennesseans or Americans or, you know, even, you know, it used to be that people identified more along their religious lines. With religious uh, attendance decreasing, people are looking for new forms of group identity, and politics has become that. The causes go Mm. back to things that started even before Donald Trump came down that golden escalator. So you also uh, keep a blog, I think, um, that is called From Washington to Westminster. Yeah, I... know more about that and your connection to England. Half your heart is in England. Um, That blog hasn't been updated in like a year. I (laughs) am actually, I texted my friend's daughter yesterday. She is supposed to be, which just makes me feel so old, by the way. Um, I've hired my friend's daughter to redo that blog and website. She's a graphic designer. And and when I tell you that makes me feel ancient, I used to babysit this girl. So, uh, (laughs) yeah. My love of England goes back to my childhood. Um, I, I sort of identify it as starting with me turning on PBS one day and finding reruns of this British soap opera called EastEnders, which I'm sure if you follow me on Twitter, you've seen me talking about. I watch like yes. every day and I'm not just somebody who watches it. I'm somebody who like lives tweet it while he watches it. Um, but I, I, you know, it's this soap opera about working class people in East London. And, you know, growing up in a working class duplex in Dayton, Ohio, I, other than Roseanne, I had never really seen a depiction of working class people on TV that I could relate to like that. And so it really started there. And then, of course, I grew up in the 90s with Spice Girls and David Beckham and, you know, then... B.B. Mac, I remember being big when I was in high school, but apparently they were only big in America and not in Britain, even though they're British. So it started, but it started Mm -hmm. there. It started in my childhood. And then in college, I studied a lot of British history because I found it fascinating because they had so much more of it Uh, (laughs) than we do. Um, But um, yeah, and then I, 
I got really interested in British government and politics. And I, I've written a lot about British politics over the years. Like I said, I was in London uh, when Trump was elected and started writing for The Independent about that. And you go back to my early work from The Independent, there's a lot of, you know, pieces about British politics. And I wrote for HuffPost UK and um, I was the political editor for the Gay UK magazine uh, at the 2017 election. So I interviewed members of parliament. That's so cool. I mean, to that you started your kind of love affair with England, you know, just from shows you were watching, not not necessarily because you had familial connection or community connection. Um, I feel the same about Ireland. A, a short side story is that I've I've always been obsessed with Irish Irish heritage, Irish history, and even river dance. Um, Skyler, when I was eighteen, I decided to uh, perform the river dance um, in front of my uh, my high school uh, for a talent show. There's, there is video of it somewhere. I just thought I could river dance, so um, I did. But anyway, I never took it to the, you know, um, to the links that you did of actually studying the country more deeply and being able to converse about uh, the public policy in, in that country. So I wonder if you have thoughts now about, you know, what you're seeing in Great Britain um, and I know polarization is real there and divides across economic and all other kinds of lines exist there as well. So are you seeing a lot of um, similarities, maybe some differences too? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the problems of polarization, I mean, and, and perhaps Americans can take part in this. We're not unique. Um, we're not, you know, yeah, we, we have this notion of American exceptionalism, but in very few ways is America exceptional. You know, these notions of polarization, it's been happening in Britain as well. Um, and I think it's been happening to a degree in other Western nations. Um, I can't speak as much to them, but you look at, you know, Western alienation in Canada, for example, and there's the whole, uh, there's a movement, small but vocal, to like, for the Western prairie provinces to secede from Canada um, and form their own sort of more conservative uh, nation. So, you see these these problems creaking up in other nations as well. And this is something that we as democracies are going to have to really grapple with over the coming century. You know, China right now really thinks that democracy is on its way out and that authoritarianism is the way of the future because democracies move too slow. They, which if you look at our government, our government is purposely designed to move at a glacial pace. You know, the, the founders and framers of our constitution made it so that deliberation was a key part of public policy and uh, legislation. That makes it very difficult for change to happen. That's deliberate. It's a feature. It's not a glitch. And authoritarians around the world are banking that in the 21st century, with the information age and all of this digital technology, that democracies won't be able to keep up. And we have to figure out a way to do that, because right now we're not keeping up. You see that happening. I just finished reading um, the memoir by uh, Mike, I think his name is Mike Signer. And he was the mayor of Charlottesville during the 2017 Unite the Right rally. And one of the things that I was horrified by is the sheer amount of bureaucracy 
and inefficiency in making key decisions that he faced. I mean, he was a weak mayor. He wasn't the one in charge because he had a Charlottesville as a weak mayor system. So it was the city manager who was really in charge. But the, the sheer amount of inefficiency was startling because things were developing so quickly. And they can in a social media age where you can have a flash mob in 30 minutes by sending out a Facebook invite. So, you know, that's a problem, not just here. That's a problem in the UK. I don't know the answers. Um, if I did, I would be wealthy. And, <laughs> but I, I, I hope that, I hope that our politicians are taking it seriously. In the UK, I don't think they are. Um, I think Boris Johnson was too busy partying during lockdown to really be thinking about the big picture. Um, but in the US, I think Joe Biden has a better understanding of it. And to be fair, I think there are some Republicans who also understand that this is this is an existential threat. You know, we have to be able to develop with the times, and right now we. So what are what are you writing about right now or um, what project are you working on that's giving you inspiration or some hope or maybe leading you to some answers? Well, there is I mean, there's always hope. There's hope, if nothing else. And yes. um, one of the things that um, has really given me a lot of hope is these last few months when I started working with 100 Days in Appalachia. Um, 100 Days in Appalachia, for those of you who don't know, is a nonprofit collaborative newsroom run for and by Appalachians. And I began with them in October as their, um, what's my title? <laughs> Contributing editor for community engagement. I write the newsletter every Tuesday, and then I edit our creators and innovators series. And it's really been through this that... I've been able to see people on the ground here in Appalachia doing doing the hard work. You know, in December, I featured a young activist from here in Campbell County um, who has done a lot of organizing and media appearances around environmental justice, both in West Virginia and here in Tennessee. Um, I went on a mine inspection um, back in November, and I wrote about that. So I've really gotten to see that there are people in our communities, and I'm sure this is true across America, not just here in Appalachia, who are really committed to making a positive difference. And a lot of them are working outside of the traditional you know, political system. They're not necessarily involved in party politics. They're involved in the hard, unglamorous work of trudging through mud to make sure your water is safe to drink. And you know, these are the people who inspire me, and these are the people who give me a lot of hope for the future of not just Appalachia, but of the country. You find that it's those that work that you're talking about, the slog of, you know, making sure our drinking water is safe or making sure our mines are up to code or those kinds of things. I mean, it's it's a slog, but it's also do you see it as being nourishing work? Absolutely. I, I could see easily how that work could nourish someone's soul um, and how it certainly nourishes communities because it, it shows people want to know that there are others who care about them. And I think a lot of our political problems right now and a lot of our divide is that much of the country feels like no one cares. You know, you look at places like here in Appalachia, but I mean, the same is true, I think, in 
you know, rural Kansas, the same is true in inner city Chicago, people feel forgotten. People feel left behind by the current system. And so a lot of what radicalizes people and a lot of what makes people even just angry and bitter and looking for someone to blame is the fact that they feel like nobody is listening. And having folks out there doing this kind of work can nourish our communities by just showing them that there are folks who care. And I'm a big proponent of getting out in your community and doing whatever you can to make a change because it's only by coming together that we're going to keep one another from tearing each other apart. I had one more question for you before I let you go. And it's something that I get to ask all of our, uh, all of the people I interview on everywhere radio and I get some really great answers. So I know you'll have one too. What is it that you're watching right now or listening to? Or, or hearing about maybe a podcast or a book or something that is making you laugh or making you or feel, making you feel more inspired? Um, one thing I've been doing is um, I just recently restarted the Golden Girls. <gasps> Thank you for yeah, being my friend, Scott. Um, I, I just restarted it. And, you know, I've seen every episode like 50 million times, but it still makes me laugh. Um, but something that's um, new, um, and I, I have been trying to find somebody to let me write this piece and I've never gotten a commission on it, but, um, watch the Connors, watch the Connors. It's the, it's Roseanne without Roseanne. Um, but I think it's better without her. That's my controversial take is, um, okay. she was the weak link. Letting John Goodman and Laurie Metcalf and Sarah Gilbert do their thing was brilliant. They are hilarious. The writing is sharp. It's witty. It's funny. It's timely. It really speaks to the struggles that working people in this country are facing. And you just, you'll laugh. You'll laugh your, your, your behind off. It's fantastic. Every Wednesday night, ABC, I, I, it's the only show that I never miss. Oh, I'm so glad we were here for that pitch. Somebody, somebody's going to pick that up. I hope somebody, somebody let me write somebody. about the Connor. <laughs> we know Skylar. We know people. Surely, we can get this written. Well, thank you so much. This has been really great getting to know you a little bit better and um, and seeing you again. So let's yeah. stay in touch. Thank you so much. I appreciate. Yeah. It. If you enjoyed Everywhere Radio, we'd love for you to consider subscribing to the General Rural Assembly newsletter. That's where we promote new offerings from the Assembly and we amplify the good work of our many partners across the country. We've also launched a new policy advocacy newsletter that comes to inboxes on Mondays to help you start each week with a quick take on the top issues that we're tracking across the nation. Everything from broadband policy to rural vaccinations. Just head over to ruralassembly.org to sign up. If you're a true fan of Everywhere Radio, please let us know by rating us wherever you get your podcast. If this isn't your cup of tea, that's no biggie. It's fine. And we'd like to thank our media partner, The Daily Yonder. Everywhere Radio is a production of the Rural Assembly. Our senior producer is Joel Cohen, and our associate producers are Xander Brown and Teresa Collins. And we're grateful for the love and support of the whole team at the Center for Rural Strategies. Love you. Mean it. You can be anywhere. We'll be everywhere. <laughs>